join our family as we uh, say a prayer for the service today. Lord, thank you for this, uh, this, this beautiful day to be in your presence, Lord, as the body, to gather together, Lord, to, uh, to worship, to pray, take communion, Lord, and of course to sit under the right administration of your word. Thank you that we are a people of the word, Lord, that you have provided us with the Bible, the Old and the New Testament, both, Lord, as our guide and our understanding of God. Your very word, Lord. Thank you today for the Psalms, especially. As we have spent this time this summer in the Psalms, Lord, thank you every week for that new aspect we learned about your character and your nature, Lord, and about the very language of the soul that we use to cry out to you in our joy, our sorrow, Lord, our anger, all the emotions that are captured in the Psalms, Lord. Thank you that we study that we see your heart for us displayed through the Lord. Thank you this week uh, as Pastor Mike comes and, uh, and preaches on the Psalm of War that you would uh, let us all be prepared to have our lives changed. Lord, to know that you have a special message for each person here. That no one is here by chance or accident. We are all here today. Uh, you have called us all here uh, to be affected by your word. And you promise your word does not come back. Thank you for the work you're doing in each of us. Again, thank you for Pastor Mike as he's prepared this week. Uh, Lord, thank you that um, you have prepared just the right words for him this day, Lord, for both himself and for us. Uh, Lord, and just uh, Lord, as he comes, Lord, remind him that it is your work that he is doing. And, uh, Lord, that he would have great confidence in what you have shown him. All this is a great to his name. It's a joy to be with you today to open up God's Word and invite you to grab your Bibles. If you have them, in turn and open to Psalm 15. Psalm 15 should sound familiar. That's the psalm that we read together this morning as part of our lectionary readings. We're going to read it again together. Uh, before I ask you to stand while you're still finding the text, I just want to say thank you to everyone who's been diligent to race to the door uh, whenever someone needs to get in. Uh, and uh, glad, glad that uh, you didn't have to stay out there any longer than you, than you had to. Uh, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word today? We'll read, I invite you to read out loud together with me Psalm 115, uh, excuse me, not 115, Psalm 15. Verses 1 through 5. There's only five verses in this psalm. We'll read them together at the end of that reading. I will say that this is the word of the Lord. Invite us all together to respond with true praise by saying thanks be to God. Let's begin. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. 
who does not put out his money in interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. It's amazing to see the depth and the breadth of the Psalms. Uh, as we've discussed before, it was Calvin who said that in the Psalms we see the full anatomy of the soul. And what he meant by that is that in the Psalms we have the full range of human emotion. Uh, not only that, not only do we have the full range of human emotion, but the Psalms actually touch on all of the different aspects and seasons of life. And here we see that it even touches our worship, it touches our liturgy, it gives instruction in a sense as to how, when, where one might approach the throne of God. Of course, that is exactly what we aim to do every time that we gather together. Whether you realize it or not, there is a sense in which each and every one of us, when we come through the portals of God's house, wherever that might be, if we were gathered in a humble living room, uh, or even around a giant tree, um, in the amphitheater outside, or in a venue such as this, where we find ourselves actually in a place that was built to be a church and a house of worship, or even as we have seen in past years, in 4-H centers and senior centers, uh, wherever we have gathered, we have converted that place by the very presence of God's people in that place into the house of God. And when we come through those gates, through those portals, through those doors, we come through with a purpose to approach the throne of God. Now we come this side of the cross. And as such, we come with an understanding that we enter into the presence, the throne room of God, not based upon our own worthiness or worth, but even as Esther would enter into the throne room of King Xerxes, hoping and praying that he might extend his scepter, thereby acknowledging his acceptance of her as she entered into those courts, we come in with the understanding that our entrance has been paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's going to be that very fact that we must keep in mind as we look at this psalm together, because here the psalmist asks a very important question. He asks perhaps the most important question. Who may sojourn in God's tent? The word tent here is literally the word for tabernacle. If you remember in the Old Testament, before there was a temple, there was a tent, the tabernacle of the Lord. This is where the Ark of the Covenant was housed. This this box that represented the, the indwelling of God's presence and the seat upon which God would sit to render judgment and to perhaps extend grace between the cherubim, as it were. And so here, the psalmist, here we see it's a psalm of David. So this psalmist is David. He says, 
who shall sojourn in your tent? Who, God, can be a guest in your tabernacle, in the place where your glory dwells? Who may approach? Who can be a guest there? Then he shifts a little bit, and there's a little bit of a repetition here in theme, but it's slightly variant as he says, who then also shall dwell on your holy hill? You see, at the time that David was king, something had happened. Before he was king, the Ark of the Covenant had been uh, captured by the Philistines in the time of Samuel. The Philistines, the ungodly Philistines, brought the Ark of the Covenant into their own temple and placed it before their god, Dagon. And it was there in their temple that they came in and saw the giant statue of their god, Dagon, fallen down, as it were, almost bowing in front of the Ark of the Covenant. Not only that, but God struck the Philistines with disease. And so they sent the Ark of the Covenant away back to Israel on a cart. Amazing story that you can go and read in 1 Samuel chapter 6. We'll reference that again shortly, but the Ark of the Covenant ends up being stuck in this place away from the tabernacle. And it was in David's life that he would actually seek to move the Ark of the Covenant, but he didn't move it back to the tabernacle. He moved, he sought to move it to Jerusalem. And ultimately it would happen in that way so that the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant were actually located in two different places. The tabernacle being where God's people had last left it under Moses' direction and the Ark of the Covenant being in a separate place on a different hill. But there's also a difference not only in location, there's a difference in which David asks the question, what does it mean to sojourn? Sojourn is different than dwelling. Of course, the Last part of that word we would recognize as being the first part of our word journey, right? To journ. To sojourn is to pass through. There's a sense in which David is saying, oh God, who can be a guest, a welcomed and protected guest in your tabernacle? Who can seek shelter there in that place? It speaks to the kind of Hospitality that has become famous in the Middle East and the ancient Near East. If you've ever read the book or watched the movie of The Lone Survivor, there is a beautiful example of that kind of hospitality that takes place in that uh, location for one of the soldiers in that story. I'm not going to go into that today, but you can go and see that example at another time. But David is asking, who can be a guest like that? Someone who is able to seek shelter and receive, uh, as it were, uh, not only hospitality, but protection, shelter. In the tabernacle, the tent, 
of the Lord. But then it shifts, doesn't it? Because it moves from sojourn to what? To dwell. And so the question changes slightly. And now David is asking, not only God, who can be a guest, who can seek shelter, but who can become a citizen? Not even just a permanent resident, but a, a citizen on your holy hill. Literally that place where your glory dwells, where your presence is located. Who can live there freely as a citizen? Because, of course, we know there's a difference between those designations, isn't there? My wife was born and raised in Zimbabwe, Africa. And so when she first entered this country, she entered under, uh, she was welcomed under the status of a visitor. She had a visitor's visa. And so she gained entry into this country as a visitor. She was a guest. And as a guest, as long as she uh, maintained a certain kind of integrity as outlined in the Constitution of the United States and the various different laws of the places where she was sojourning, she could expect to receive the hospitality and protection of this nation. But she was still just a guest. And as we know, uh, there, is, there is a time limit on any kind of guest, right? <laughs> uh, so we, we, we understand what it means to wear out your welcome. That means you stayed past the time uh, expected of you. And, and so she had to transition from that status of being a guest to being a resident. But even as a permanent resident, she wasn't entitled to everything that I was entitled to as a natural born citizen. It wasn't until many years later that she was then able to even move from permanent resident to citizen and was able to receive now everything that a citizen is able to receive. And that's what David is interested in. He's saying, God, not only who can be a guest, God, I'm not satisfied with merely being a guest. I want to be a citizen. I want to live in the place where your presence and your glory dwells. I mean, that's a pretty great ambition, isn't it? Surely that's what we were made for. Of course, we see in the garden. Where were Adam and Eve dwelling? They were dwelling in God's garden. And in God's garden, what did they enjoy? Not only the gift of his hands, but his very presence. As it says that God would walk with Adam and Eve in the cool, in the mist of the morning. They enjoyed full access. They lived in the presence of God. But after the fall, what happened? They were excommunicated, so to speak. They were cast out of the garden. There was an angel with a fiery sword that was set up to keep them out of the garden so that they might not come and eat of the tree of life and live forever outside of God's presence. God had a plan whereby he was going to restore communion with his beloved creation. But in the meantime, there was separation. And we feel that separation. 
And the people of God, even in David's time, could feel that separation. David felt that separation. That separation was, uh, was made visible in the tabernacle of the Lord because there was a giant curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place. Even when the temple was ultimately built, that what was made visible in the tabernacle was exponentially made evident in the curtain that was constructed in the temple. There was always this degree of separation between God's people and his presence. And yet, because David has a heart after God, because he is one of God's people, he has this desire to not only sojourn in God's tent, but to dwell in his presence. And so he asks the question. In a sense, David assumes the position as a catechumen and the one who is exercising him and, and dealing with him in his catechesis is God himself because he directs his question to the Lord. But the answer is his to give. He directs his question to the Lord. O oh Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? This speaks back to, if you'll remember, oh, probably 18 months ago when we were going through our series called Liturgy and going through all the different elements of our worship together. And we saw how important it was that when we came into God's house, that we didn't ask, what do we want to do to worship God, but rather ask, what has God said we should do? He's the one who gets to decide the difference between acceptable and unacceptable worship. And so David rightly directs his question to God. He doesn't say, what do I think that I should have to do in order to approach and be a guest in God's tent? What should I have to do? What do I think? What would I be comfortable with? What would really make me happy? Uh, that would be a requirement so that I could dwell in God's presence. Instead, David rightly directs the question to God himself. And he says, oh Lord, let me ask you, what do you think? What are your thoughts? What have you required? What are your standards of criteria? God, who, tell us who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall, and really the emphasis in a sense, more a may may dwell on your holy hill. Because of these questions of who may, who shall, this psalm has been called a liturgical psalm of entrance. Many questioned if perhaps even the priest would stand at the gates of the tabernacle or the temple and, and literally ask this question to people who are coming to seek to enter, seeking this response from them in a liturgical sense so that they would uh, have to personally recognize as they made entrance who really was allowed to come before the presence of God. We don't know if that's the case or not, but this is not the only song that is written this way. Another psalm that may be more familiar to us is Psalm 24. Verses 3 through 6 says, Who shall ascend 
the hill of the Lord who shall stand in his holy place. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of God, the God of Jacob, Salem. This psalm likewise asks in a similar way, God, who may come before you? Who may come into your presence and not only come and visit, but may live there, may dwell there. And there ought to be something inside of each and every one of our hearts that we want to be in God's presence. We were made to worship Him. And there ought to be something inside of us, as I said, perhaps the most important question that we must ask is, who is the one who can not only visit, but dwell in the presence of God forever? We're not left just with a question, we're, we're given an answer. What's interesting about the answer is we might expect, especially seeing as this is a sort of liturgical psalm, we may expect that the answer would be something in line with different ceremonies or rites or rituals that the worshiper may have to engage in in order to receive entrance into the tabernacle or the place where the ark of God's presence dwells. Instead, the answer comes to us not out of the first table of the law, but out of the second table of the law. That part of the law that touches our interpersonal and human relationships, if you want, not the vertical relationship between God and man, but the horizontal relationship between man and man. That's the answer that's given here. And what does he say? He says, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right. In a sense, this starts with the generalized answer. That is sort of the all-encompassing general answer. Who is the one who may approach? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right. And the rest of the psalm kind of fills in what that means. What does it mean to walk blamelessly and do what is right? And so he continues. That person is the one who then what? Speaks truth. What does it say? With his lips? No, that's not where he goes. It says, he who speaks truth within his heart. We know from the rest of Scripture, what? That from the heart, the mouth speaks. That's why it's so important for us not to be flippant with our words, to say what we mean and mean what we say. Even in times of Frustration or anger or disappointment is important for us not to allow ourselves to give rein to the passions of our heart, those things that might cause us to speak things that we don't really mean. Because as the heart, the mouth speaks, but also as the mouth speaks, the heart sometimes is also led. 
We allow ourselves to speak out those things that we have kind of secretly harbored in our heart and we begin to give ourselves room, even if we didn't mean it at first. The more we say it, the more we start to allow room and we begin to believe it and allow those things in our lives. And so here the psalmist says, the one who is walking blamelessly and doing is what is right first must speak truth in his heart. Paul would say that one of the most important spiritual things that we can do uh, in our lives is actually to take every thought captive to the obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. That means that we don't, uh, we, we must understand that every thought that comes into our minds from our heart is not necessarily from us or from God. That there's sometimes interference there in a certain place, and that's why the very first uh, piece of spiritual armor that Paul would instruct Christians to put on in Ephesians chapter 6 was the helmet of salvation. Because there's some unsanctified stuff going on up there. And so we have to stand century in the battlefield of our minds. And when each thought comes up, we have to have an attitude of, Halt! Who goes there? From where do you come and to whom do you claim allegiance? Where's this thought coming from? Is this thought informed by God's word? Is it, is it filled with his spirit? Is it in alignment with the way that God would seek me to think, to, to, to dwell on, to meditate on? Or is it coming from someplace else? And it's coming from someplace else. Paul says, take no prisoners. We execute it on the spot. You are not from God. Therefore, this thought, you must die. Bow your knee to Jesus or die. What does that mean, to, to, to bow the knee to Jesus? It means that those thoughts that bow the knee to Jesus are those thoughts that will be in conformity with God's word, will be in conformity with the moving of the Holy Spirit in our lives and not contrary to those things. And we must, we must not allow those thoughts to come and pass through the gates to the place of our heart where we begin to dwell on them and meditate on them and ruminate on them and just allow those things to swirl around in our hearts because it's only a matter of time before those things start coming out of our mouths. And the longer it comes out of our mouths, it's only a matter of time, no matter how much we thought maybe we didn't believe it. In the first place, we'll begin to act on those things that we have then said because we first allowed them to take up residence in our thoughts. David says, the one who walks blamelessly and does what is right is the one who speaks truth, not just with his lips, but starts in his heart. Not only that, because he's speaking truth in his heart, he also, verse 3, does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor. For the worst evil that we can do to our neighbor is to speak falsely about them. There is no 
affront really greater than slander. To ruin someone's reputation and character is a great evil. In fact, in days gone by, those who were slanderers were compared to murderers. Because in a sense, they, and we still use this verbiage, we just don't believe it very much anymore. They do what? They assassinate character. And there are those who claim to be pious and yet slander their brothers and sisters. They slander people. They, they, they assassinate their character and they spread around false things. And, and to be quite honest, it doesn't even have to be false. Sometimes it can be true. But it's not our place to take the miseries of another person and spread them around to other people, but rather to go to our brothers and sisters who are in error, as Paul would say in Galatians chapter 6, the spirit of gentleness, seek to restore them with humility, being watchful over ourselves, knowing that we too are not free from the temptation to stumble. So David says, not only does this person speak truth in his heart, he doesn't slander with his tongue and he does no evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend. Some people say, well, I'd never share that about anybody, but boy, tell me more. They, they lend a listening ear to the slander and gossip that others are willing to spread, even if they themselves will remain silent. And David says, the person who walks blamelessly, who does what is right, who may sojourn in God's tent and dwell on his holy hill, must not only not speak those evil things, but not give them a listening ear, not even entertain those things about others. For he does not take up a reproach against his friend. Also, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, we must read the rest of this, but who honors those who fear the Lord. There's a contrast that is going on there. It's not just saying those who don't, uh, who despise people who really look bad. That's what we tend to think of as a vile person. Those who, man, they're vile. They just look terrible. I can really tell they must be a bad person because of this or that or the other thing. But if we see the contrast that David is painting here when he says, but who honor those who fear the Lord, the vile person is not the person who looks bad on the outside, but who on the inside is not fearing the Lord. This could actually be someone who pretends uh, who puts on airs and graces of a pious attitude of, of looking like and sounding like and acting like the person who might be able to be a guest in God's house and dwell on his holy hill because of the piety that they put out in front of other people. But in their hearts, they actually don't fear the Lord at all. Jesus makes this kind of example plain in one of his stories about the difference between the Pharisee and the tax collector, if you remember, the Pharisee comes in to pray. And he stands there with his, his arms open and his eyes lifted up. And what does he say? Oh God, thank you that I'm not like this tax collector over here. Why? Because the tax collector outwardly seemed like what? A vile person. 
Meanwhile, Jesus shows that actually on that day, it was the Pharisee who was vile, who did not fear the Lord, no matter how piously he acted. But the tax collector who came couldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his chest and said, What, O oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner? Jesus said on that day, it was the tax collector that went home justified. Here, David draws a contrast between the person who really is only looking to honor themselves and the person who, in their heart, fears the Lord. And we should want to honor those kinds of people. I hope that you know what it's like to be around a person who truly honors and fears the Lord in their life. There is nothing more refreshing than being in that person's presence. You want to know why? Because they spend time in the presence of the Lord. And you can sense it. You can feel it. You, you may not even be able to articulate it. But when you get done spending time with that person, you come away refreshed. Even if you're an introvert, you come away from time with that kind of a person uplifted in your heart. You come away almost with a bounce in your step and a song in your heart because there's something about that person who fears the Lord, who spent time in his presence, who honors him, and you come away probably having spent more time talking about the Lord than you talked about them. And we all know what it's like to spend time with the other kind of person who only wants to talk about themselves who only wants to show you how great this or that thing that they're doing is, and, and you kind of walk away going, oh, good for them, I guess. There's a difference. And we should desire and want to be around those people and honor those people who we can see truly fear the Lord. He goes further, he says, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. This doesn't mean that he's saying he will hurt himself for the sake of others purposefully. But rather what he's saying is if he makes a promise, a vow, he keeps that promise and vow even if the situation changes and keeping his promise or vow is going to end up being a detriment to him when before he thought it was going to be a boom. And we all know what it's like in our day and age, how quickly people want to jump ship when it seems like things aren't actually going to work out in their favor the way that they originally thought. It also speaks to the Christian ethic of being a man or a woman of our word. When people used to say that he or she was a man or a woman of their word or that their word was their bond, that wasn't just the virtue of a bygone yesterday, that was a Christian Virtue. There's something that came from those people who did fear the Lord. That they understood that if they said something, that what they said, they belonged to the Lord. And if they went back on their word, they were being false image bearers because God is a God of his word. He doesn't change his mind. He keeps his promises to a thousand generations. He is faithful to 10,000 generations. And when we who are his image bearers, not only made in his image, but remade in the image of the son, when we don't keep our word, we are falsely reflecting our God and our Savior and saying that our God and our Savior 
are not covenant-keeping gods. Rather, a covenant-keeping God. And so the man or woman who fears the Lord will keep their promises and their vows. Even when it turns out that that promise or that vow isn't going to work out to their benefit the way that they first thought that it would. And this is important because it speaks to those around us, both our brothers and sisters, but even those outside of the family of God, to those who are looking on and watching, that we are reflecting a true image of our Father when we keep our word, even to our detriment. I mean, that's a noticeable thing, isn't it? You have a plan with somebody, we, we, we made a plan, we made an arrangement, this is how it's supposed to work out, and then suddenly things change, and you know what? It's not going to work out the way that we thought it was going to, but the Christian, the one who honors the Lord, the one who fears the Lord, does what? He doesn't abandon the project, but digs in and says, look, we're going to see this thing through the way that we said that we would. Now, is there ever an opportunity to get out of an obligation? Of course there is. But when there is no opportunity to get out of an obligation, a man who fears God keeps his vows. And speaking of keeping vows, that speaks to what? Also, any of our covenants, our marriage covenants as well. As believers, we must not just abandon ship when things get tough or don't go our way. Who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Then he says this, who does not put out his money and interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. There were rules in the Judaic covenants that they made, the Jewish people, the Hebrew people made with God when God commanded that they would not uh, take out interest on their brothers and sisters. In other words, if you had a neighbor, and in a year like this year, where we have had significant drought, and they lose their crop, and they come to you looking for a loan because they're going to have no seed corn for the following year, and they need to go and buy seed to plant for the next year because they lost their whole crop, and you have it within your means to, to loan them the money, God says, don't collect interest on that loan. Don't take their misfortune as an opportunity to take advantage of them to better yourself, but help your brother or your sister. Most of these laws had to do with person-to-person -person kinds of interactions that would take place. They didn't necessarily speak to the kind of corporate transactions that we often deal with. But if we are in a place of business or business dealings and we have opportunity to, to, to have business dealings with other people, either person to person or business to person, there is a incumbent, uh, it is incumbent upon us as God's people not to use those positions of power to extract from the less fortunate our stepping ladder up above them even more. Not only that, not put out his money and interest, but he says here he does not take a bribe 
against the innocent. Who doesn't allow someone else to come and say, look, I know this person over here, they've done nothing to you, there's, there's nothing, but we have a unique opportunity here. And if you'll just kind of take this little something, something right here, we can go, we can do this thing, and you know what, we're gonna, we're gonna come out of this really smiling. Yeah, it's gonna be to their misfortune, but you know what? Survival of the fittest. No, the one who fears God, who wants to dwell with him, must not have that kind of attitude towards his fellow man. And there's a promise at the end here. So we begin with a couple of questions. We have a series of answers, and there's a promise at the end. And what's the promise? He who does these things shall never be moved. I wish, I wish that I could come away from this this today and say, you know what, guys, here it is, it's laid out. This is what God's looking for, and you know what, he's just, he's looking for that good old college try. You know, just give it your best effort. Put your, your thoughts towards this and, and seek to live in this way, and, and you know, I know you're gonna falter and you're gonna fail, and, and you know, that's okay because God, God's just kind of looking at, you know, your intent. You know, if, it, if, if all you do is just, he knows that you're trying, that's, that's good enough. And you know what, I wish, I wish that's what I could say because, because then we all might have a chance. You know, if it really just comes down to God kind of judging it and going, okay, yeah, yeah, see, you're really, really trying there, uh-huh, yeah, okay, yeah, I see your heart, bro, I see your heart, yeah, okay, all right, and, and, and God is just judging our desire to want to do this thing rather than actually doing it, then maybe, maybe we might all have a chance, and, and I could say, and perhaps, you know, you know, try really hard, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, really dig down deep, and go for it, man, give it all you got, give it 110 and at the end of this, God's going to judge. He goes, man, you know, maybe they didn't hit it all the way, but they really tried enter into the joy of my Father. That's really not the standard that David gives us here. There's really no sort of wiggle room, and, and I have to believe that perhaps what even caused David to pin this song and if he pinned it before this time, at least this song renewed in his mind when this happened has to do when he tried to move the Ark of the Covenant. You may remember the story, 2 Samuel chapter 6. David has just been, he's just received his coronation, so to speak. He's anointed before the people as king of Israel. His conflicts with Saul are over because Saul is dead. He defeats the Philistines. And kind of his first act then is David wants to bring the Ark of the Covenant from where it has been 
sort of stored and housed for over 20 years. He wants to bring it to Jerusalem. Watch what happens here. Verses 1 through 11 says, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, where it had been, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. So just imagine this for a moment. There's been a lot of unrest. Been many years under Saul where at the beginning of his reign it seemed like everything was going well. But Saul began to what? Not chase after God's heart, but after his own heart to seek selfishly the things that would fulfill him instead of those things that would honor and glorify God. And God sent the troubling spirit upon Saul and that was just the beginning of a hot mess. Not only was Saul constantly pursuing David, there was more inbreaking of the Philistines into Israel. There was constant conflict going on. And now Saul is dead. David's anointed as king. He crushes the Philistines. Everything is looking awesome. The people are rejoicing. This righteous man that they watch grow up right before their eyes. Saul has slain his thousands. David has slain his ten thousands. It seems like an era of promise is coming. And now David rises to the throne and his first act, what is he going to do? He's a man after God's own heart. He has a heart like Moses did when Moses said to God, we're not going anywhere unless your presence goes with us. And so what is David going to do? He's going to bring the Ark of the Covenant, the place where God's presence dwells, to the city of Jerusalem. He's going to bring it there and house it there and ultimately bring the tabernacle there. I love that David's like, hey, we're not going to move the tent first. We're going to move the Ark of the Covenant first. And then we can move the tent and bring it here. And the people are ecstatic. I mean, 30,000 people gathered together, singing and dancing and praising God. It's this beautiful moment. And then look at what it says in verse 6. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen stumbled. So, I mean, what's going on here? Here is the son of Abinadab. His whole life in his house, the ark of the covenant has been housed. And now he's been chosen along with his brother to, to accompany the Ark of the Covenant to the city of Zion, to Jerusalem. 
They've served literally in the presence of the Lord in their own house all of his life. And now they're going. And as they hit the threshing floor, perhaps where the carts had gone around and around and around, there may have been a rut where the oxen or the donkey had caused this rut. And the oxen hit it. And what happens? They stumble. And the cart hits the rut. And now the, the Ark of the Covenant is going to fall off of this cart. And Uzzah, with great intention, reaches out. And he grabs a hold of the Ark of the Covenant. Why? He's not willing to see it hit the floor. He has great intention. He wants to honor the Lord. He reaches out. He grabs the cart. And what does it say? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the Ark of God. And David was angry. Because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. Which means a breaking out against Uzzah. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? You have to go back one whole book to 1 Samuel chapter 6. When the ark of the covenant originally came to Abinadab's house. And when it did, verse 19, 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 19, it says, And he, meaning God, struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them. They looked upon it. They just looked. How could you not want to look? Here comes the ark of the covenant. It's been gone. The Philistines took it. Now it's coming here. It's coming to our town, to our our place to have been at that house is coming here and they look upon it and the Lord strikes them. <laughs> Seventy men. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then listen to this. The men of Beth Shemesh said, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? See, the question of David here in Psalm 15, who may dwell, who may, uh, sorry, who may sojourn in your tent and who may dwell on your hill, I believe actually has a little more desperation in the question. Here David is seeking to bring the Ark of the Covenant up, and as he does, God strikes down this man just because he reached out and tried to grab the Ark as the oxen stumbled. And David, it says, was afraid of the Lord that day. And I imagine this question coming. God, who? Who then? Who, who can sojourn in your tent? Who can, who can dwell on your hill? If even those with the best intentions reach out and they're struck dead, oh God, who? Who can live? And you almost get the sense of the guys in 1 Samuel chapter 6 when they say who. They're not just asking in general, which of us may. But you get the sense of them looking for a substitute. Who may go for us? 
Who may stand in that place for us? We need somebody who can stand between us and the presence of God. Remember, the Israelites said this to Moses. No, 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 Moses, you go. You, you go and talk to the Lord. You stand between him and us. Because there's really only two responses to God's presence. It's either repulsion or it's desire. And without understanding the mercy of God's grace, if we truly understand our own depravity and sin, we really can only believe that not only should we not, but God surely must be repulsed himself. Remember Peter's response when Jesus comes and does the miracle of the catch of fish. When Peter jumps out of the boat and he kneels before the Lord, what does he say? He doesn't say, oh Jesus, come with us. He says what? Go away from me, oh Lord, for I am a sinful man. Isaiah in the presence of God in Isaiah chapter 6 says what? Not, oh my gosh, this is amazing. But rather, woe is me. I remember <laughs> listening to the late Dr. R.C. Sproul talking about Uzzah in his book, The Holiness of God. He makes an observation. And if not in whole, at least in part, it was a sin. Was that he reckoned the earth to be dirtier and more contaminated than himself. <clears throat> he tried to keep the Ark of the Covenant from hitting the dirt because in his own estimation that dirt was more contaminated than he was. And God strikes him down because by doing so, he <laughs> failed to recognize the absolute standard of God's holiness. When David writes in the psalm and says, who shall sojourn and who shall dwell? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right it's an absolute. There's, there's no room for a good old college try. God is looking for the one who would truly walk blamelessly and do what is right. And so at first reading, if we're honest with ourselves, we must see Psalm 15 as a barrier to God's presence. Because if I look at myself and I judge myself and I look at my not only my actions that everyone else can see, but the thought and the intent of my heart, 
I wish I could say that I was blameless. I wish that I could say that I always sought to do what is right, not just for how it would benefit me, but purely and only for the glory of God. But I have to say that even my best actions are tainted with sin. There's some amount of selfishness left within me that even the best things that I do, I still am doing in some way, shape or form for how they might benefit me in some way, which means what? I'm not blameless. I haven't truly done what is right. That there are times that I don't speak truth in my heart. That I may seek to speak truth with my lips, but in my heart sometimes I'm, I'm dishonest, even with myself. And even if I wouldn't open my mouth to slander someone else, there are times that in my heart I have fought ill against others or believed the slander and listened, perhaps even gleefully, to the reproach of others. And if we had to judge ourselves by the absolute standard of God's holiness, recognizing that while this is not an exhaustive List This list of answers to David's question does represent a kind of wholeness, a general wholeness that God is looking for. Because what does this represent? Each one of these things represent the character and nature of our holy and righteous God. And so if we had to judge ourselves. We would have to come up with a grade that doesn't pass. And so then Psalm 15 becomes a barrier. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill and receive the blessing of never being moved? In other words, he who does this and earns this and is able to not only be a guest, but be a citizen in God's presence to live forever. There's never going to be a time where someone comes and hangs a foreclosed sign on the door. There's never going to be a time where someone can come and buy you out. There's never going to be a time where you can't afford to remain there any longer. He who is able will never be moved will enjoy the presence of Almighty God forever and ever without end. Amen. But we ask the question and we judge ourselves and I have to come away and say, yes, it's, it's not me. It's not me. And I mean, not to be rude or anything, but I look around at all of us and I say, then who? So we ask the question, we ask, is anyone, is anyone worthy? Is anyone worthy? The question is familiar, isn't it? We've read the end of our Bibles. As the elders who are gathered around the throne, looking upon a scroll that is sealed, they ask the same question, is, is anyone worthy? There's one. There's one who is worthy.
It's the lion who is also the lamb who is slain. He is worthy. And this is where we must, we must begin to understand that when Jesus came and he died on the cross to forgive us of our sins, he was also raised for our justification. So that we can rejoice not only in the forgiveness of sins, which means a blank slate, but we can glory in imputed righteousness. That the life that Jesus lived on this earth in true perfection, he lived walking blamelessly. He did what is right. He spoke truth in his heart. He did not slander with his tongue and he did no evil to his neighbor. He never took up a reproach against his friend, but rather became a reproach for his friends. In whose eyes a vile person was despised, but he honored those who feared the Lord because he himself feared the Lord. And he swore. There was a covenant in the Godhead, the Father to adopt, the Son to redeem, and the Spirit to apply. And Jesus kept his vow even to his own hurt. And he did not extend what he earned before Almighty God offering it to those who may take advantage of this one-time offer at 29.9% interest. But rather, Jesus earned everything for you and for me. And he offered it to us, not only without interest, without payment. The thing that cost the most in the whole world, which was the sacrifice of God's own son, more costly than anything we could ever imagine, is offered freely and without cost. And while he would never take a bribe, all the things that Jesus did in perfection were done to him in the most vile way so that he himself was even betrayed with a bride. 30 pieces of silver for the cost of the Son of God. Is anyone worthy? Jesus is. He is worthy. And when he died on the cross, something amazing happened, didn't it? In the natural and the supernatural at the same time. Because the barrier, the curtain, that separated God's people from God's presence was ripped from top to bottom. 
And apart from Christ, Psalm 15 represents a barrier. Is any one of us worthy? The answer is no. But where Psalm 15 is a barrier, Jesus is the gate. And all those who enter through him by grace, through faith, in him receive everything that he earned. So that we can answer the question of who shall sojourn in God's tent and dwell in his presence on his hill with a resounding all those whom Christ has revealed. Where Psalm 15 is a barrier, Jesus is the gate. He is able to cleanse and make clean all those who come to him. And so we have a particular kind of response. In the sense that this psalm represents to us the law, we allow it to do what the law is meant to do. And so we read it and initially we come away and what happens? We are brought face to face with our sin. And what must we do? We must recognize it. We must read it and see that we are not on our own able. We're not worthy. And so what do we do? We confess that sin before God. We recognize that we need the doing of another. And so we heed the words of James to the church. Where he says in James chapter 4, Do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scriptures say he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace for his God? Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil. And he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Listen to this. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. And so there's a sense in which we receive Psalm 15 and we hear it as it is meant to be, as that barrier between us and God. We receive the, the, the just verdict that we're not worthy. And we recognize our unworthiness and we confess our sin before God. But here's the beautiful thing. The grace of God makes us able to do that. Where we don't have to uh, pretend like our sin doesn't exist, but rather we freely admit it before God because we are confident that his grace is sufficient for us. And as we confess our sin, we believe what? That he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And where our attitude of 
absolute laziness and just not paying attention to God and His will and His way turns as we repent for our sins. There is mourning, but that mourning does not become the laughter of fools, but it becomes the joy of the redeemed. As we recognize that while we are not worthy, Jesus is worthy, and his righteousness has been imputed to all those who put their faith in him. And now, what was a barrier becomes a gate through Jesus Christ. And we are called now not to ignore those things and say, oh, well, since, you know, I haven't done it, I can't do it. I'll never be worthy enough to do it on my own. So I'll just ignore those things. Who cares? Paul would say what in Romans chapter 6? Shall we sin all the more that grace may abound? The answer is emphatically, by no means. So what do we do? We say, recognizing that Christ has already done this for me. Let me now apply myself to these things, not out of fear of what will happen if I don't, but out of the absolute joy of motivation of what it means to live this way to the glory of my Father. Let me then, to the best of my ability, by God's grace and the Spirit helping me to live as blamelessly as I can, to do what is right, to speak truth in my heart, to not slander with my tongue or do evil to my neighbor or take up a reproach against my friend or to uh, not allow those things that are vile that don't honor to the Lord to be entertainment for me, but rather to honor those who fear the Lord, to keep my word, to not take advantage of other people. God, help me to do these things. And God, thank you. That because of Jesus and what he has done, and because my life has been built on him as the solid rock, he who shall not be moved, God, I will not be moved either. Make that your prayer today. And ask the Lord to begin to sanctify your heart to not only want but do those things that are pleasing to him, not out of fear, but out of joy and for his glory. Let's pray. Would you stand with me today? Father, we thank you for this day and for this word. God, what is in one moment a terrifying wall separating us from your presence can, in the very next moment, upon lifting our eyes to the cross of Jesus Christ, become a great and open door by which we may enter and receive through Christ, every spiritual blessing that he's earned for us. God, I pray that in that we would also recognize the eternal security that is offered. He who does these things shall not be moved. God, may our lives be built on the solid rock of Jesus Christ and not on the shifting sands of this world or our own efforts and works so that no matter what may come, we can know that in you, we are secure. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So let's try and sing this this morning. We're going to sing from the 16th.